Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with William Irvine. Bill Irvine was a professor at Wright State University and is the author of seven books, including his bestseller, A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. During our conversation, Bill talks about the history of the Stoics, an ancient school of philosophy that began in Athens in 300 BC. He also talks about the psychological training that the Stoics encouraged, including negative visualization, a practice aimed at reducing the human tendency for insatiability and increasing our gratitude for the many gifts of our lives. Bill's book helped to launch the modern renaissance of Stoicism. The Stoics' message, including those of Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus, and Musonius Rufus, emphasized the importance of intentional struggle and temporary hardship to align one's body and one's mind with the reality of life itself. This message is evergreen in creating resilient and capable people, and ever more important in our increasingly super-convenient, super-addicted, brave new world. Stoicism reminds me of a quote from Veritas Savannah, Prepare your child for the road, not the road for your child. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bill Irvine. Bill, I've been looking forward to this one. It is such a pleasure to meet you. I'm looking forward to talking about uh, your amazing book. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You got it. I thought maybe for the audience, and I know I've heard you answer this question before in previous interviews, but it, it always tends to, to help to start at the beginning. How did this book come to be? I've heard you say in other podcast interviews, you were expecting about 12 people to read this book. And it's about 15 years old, and you have thousands of Amazon reviews. What's the story of how the book came about in the first place? Okay. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know how far back to go, but I'll start <laughs> with uh, so I'll start with the, the late 1990s. So what was I? I uh I've been a you know a tenure track professor since 1983. And uh, so I was, uh, I wanted a, a career that would succeed. And the way you succeed is first, you get a tenure track position, which it turns out was a very difficult thing to do, probably even harder today than it was then. Um, then uh, once you get that, that you're what's called an assistant professor, so you don't have tenure yet. So then my uh, first job is to get tenure, at which point you become an associate professor. Hmm. Um, so how do you get tenure? Depends on where you're at. Uh, if you're at Harvard, you kind of need to teach, but you really, really need to publish. I ended up uh, tenure track at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, where you have to you have to do both. And the interesting thing is the publishing. Uh, you know, at Harvard, it would typically be highly technical stuff just aimed at your own field. Um, but Wright State was very open-minded about it. I said, okay, I'll be doing that. But what if I also do stuff aimed that's philosophical, aimed at a broader audience, and actually that's kind of like on the borderline between philosophy and something else, but aimed at a broader audience? And they said, well, you know, if it's a book and you, you get it published, 
Um, so at that time, I seem to have been going a very low grade kind of midlife crisis. And um, uh, I thought I wanted to start practicing Zen Buddhism. And then it dawned on me that um, I had an opportunity to do what we in the Midwest call a twofer. That's two for the price of one. So uh, and in doing the research that I wanted to do anyway in uh, Zen, I could also generate material that I could put into a book. And with this book, I could rise from the level of associate professor to uh, to full professor, so move up in the in the ranks. Um, so in writing that book, uh, I had a lot of fun reading the stuff on Zen, but it also dawned on me that for it to be a kind of academically acceptable book, I, I should actually put Zen into a broader uh, a broader kind of uh, tableau, uh, you know. So were there rivals to Zen? Well, yeah, it turned out there were a whole bunch. You know, there were re religions, there were philosophical uh, kind of takes on um, on what it what you wanted to do with your life. Um, and so in the process of writing that, I stumbled across uh, the Stoics. Mm. And uh, I had actually encountered them before, but it would have been in a logic class because it turns out that the Stoics were the uh, preeminent um, uh, logicians of their time, and they were the ones who developed propositional logic. And that's the logic of and, or, if, mm. then. Uh, it's the kind that, that's used in programming computers. Uh, so they they were they they had an interest in that and developed some basic uh, kind of principles, but I had encountered them in the philosophy classes that I took as an undergraduate. I had encountered their logic, but not their philosophy. And now you know that's just incredible. How could that be? You know, you you left out the best part for this uh, this technical stuff. And the more I read about Stoicism. Uh, the more fascinating I became. And one surprise was that it seemed like the Stoics and um, and uh, Zen practitioners were aimed at the same goal. Uh, the same goal would be, uh, you could use the word tranquility, uh, and that's a dangerous word though, because that can mean a bunch of different things. Equanimity is perhaps a better a word. Uh, and what is that? That is the presence in your life of positive emotions and the absence of negative emotions. And how do you tell those apart? Well, the positive ones feel good and the negative ones feel bad. And 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 so we're not talking about feelings, you know, things that feel good, you know, like a, a good back rub feels good. These are our emotional states. So what feels bad? Well, anger does, anxiety does, envy does. You can go through a list. Hmm. Uh, well, what feels good? Well, obviously happiness, although we can argue whether that's actually an emotion. It turns out to be an interesting thing. Uh, but things like moments of delight, um, uh, the experience of joy, the experience of awe, you know, awe and wonder at the world. Those are wonderful emotions to experience. And... Um, and so the other discovery about the Stoics was they weren't anti-emotion, they were anti-negative emotion. And then the key thing is they uh, came up with uh, strategies, psychological strategies, in order to minimize the number of negative emotions you experienced and maximize the number of positive emotions. 
and they had you know half a dozen uh, principles uh uh psychological tricks for for doing that and it became clear to me that if i was comparing on the one hand zen buddhism and on the other hand stoicism that zen buddhism uh, had a much higher price of admission you know you had lots of a meditation and you might have your moment of insight the next day or it might be 30 years or it might be never but uh, my standard line is on a good three-day weekend you can learn enough to understand uh, what stoicism is about and to test drive some of its psychological principles and see whether they're working for you so i did that test drive myself and was just blown away and thought now all of this was done in preparation to write a, a book um, called On Desire. Uh, so I was looking at both. But then coming out of On Desire, I thought, okay, uh, the world needs stoicism in the worst way. So I'm going to write a book about it. And nobody's going to buy it because there it was simply it, the world had no interest, almost no interest. And you could probably count on, on uh, you know, under 100 you know, self-identifying Stoics on the planet Earth. But I thought, it needs to be done. Hmm. And much to my surprise, well, it got off to a, a rough start, but it picked up speed. And, you know, it's really interesting to try to think of why that should be. But it turns out I got in at the ground floor of um, the 21st century renaissance of interest in Stoicism. And so a book that I thought had to be written probably wouldn't sell turned out to be uh so far the the most the best selling book uh I've done. Yeah, fascinating. I think to put this in historical context, right? And I know you've talked about the schools of you know the ancient world like I think the parallel the metaphor you've given is like um martial arts schools. Who yep. were the Stoics in in uh in prehistory? What's what's the historical grounding that might be interesting to listeners? Okay, there was a time before philosophy, uh, and Socrates would normally be identified as the first true philosopher. And then uh, he got a lot of followers. The people liked to, to watch what he was he was doing. And the interesting thing is, he wasn't actually going out and teaching principles. What he would do is he would walk around on the streets of Athens, and when he would come across somebody, he would start asking, start a conversation, start asking them questions. Because the people he came up to thought they knew the answers, but mm. it very quickly became apparent that they were fooling themselves. So he didn't have the answers himself, but he thought, you know, one useful thing I can do is go around and show other people that they don't have the answers either. Now, of course, he he got in trouble doing that and um, was forced to, uh, I don't know the polite word for it, but self-euthanize. But uh, and that was that was the key that opened the lock because then a whole bunch of schools of philosophy sprang into existence and you you, you know you, we know about Plato he was a follower of Socrates uh, and then later Aristotle and what those people did is they started a school and it was literally a school meaning that you had students and meaning that you could actually make some kind of living. If you got followers, so, um, and I like uh, the following, and so uh, Zeno of Sidium, the first uh, Stoic, 
he created his own school. So this would have been in, in 300 BC. This would have been after, long after uh, Socrates, well, a century plus after Socrates. And uh, he decided, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to mix together the stuff that's already floating around there and make my own school on the basis of that. I'm going to take a little bit of ethics and a little bit of physics and a little bit of psychology, and I'm going to mix them together. So um, it seemed to me, it still does, that if somebody is trying to start a new school of martial arts, you know, you could probably come up with an entirely new way of fighting, you know, or you could say, you know, let's take a bit of, of jujitsu and a bit of judo and a bit of karate and mix them together. And we're going to have a really, really effective uh, uh, means of self-defense. Um, now, if you tell a philosopher that that's what a philosopher was doing, that he was he was uh, creating, he was uh, um, fixing, making, mixing his his formula together to reach an audience. You know, they will deny it. No, he was in pursuit of the truth. And that's because modern philosophers in the university don't have the profit motive. You know, we don't have to make our students happy. They pay to come get us. We give them grades. And uh, if you make your students really, really unhappy and you don't have tenure yet, you're probably in deep trouble. But uh, but that's not the thing. So we don't have to to lure them. They're forced to take our classes. By the way, I'm retired, so I can say things like this and get away with it. Um, so um, so but that's what they did. And you know, if you didn't have students, you didn't have a school. And if your students deserted you, there was your school. Uh, but he did a, a blend that attracted uh, students. And uh, after he died. Uh, someone took on in his place, and uh, and then so you have this continuation, uh, and then and that was all in Greece, and then uh, it it made the hop to to Rome. Most of what the Greeks did, their writings are lost to us. So we have a we have descriptions of of what other people say they were doing and what they were teaching, but we don't really. We don't really have a good record, but the Romans took it and ran with it and put their own spin on it. And we have a ton of stuff written by the Roman Stoics. Uh, the four leading names are uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Seneca, Epictetus, and then the fourth one, um, Musonius Rufus, who's not a, a commonly known name, but uh, he he is very, very uh, good. I, I, I like him. In fact, uh, I uh, edited a translation of his. Uh, of his, um, it isn't actually his works. It's the, the, the notes taken by one of his students. Um, he didn't leave written words behind. Uh, and you know, I would hate for posterity to know me by the notes taken by my students. You know, because there'd be this page, you know, garbled stuff, and then pictures of cats and things like that from the student uh, students' notes. Uh, but from what we get, it, it's a very coherent thing. We find out, wow, he was an early feminist. Uh, uh, and we also get a range looking at those Stoics that they weren't in, they weren't a monolithic bunch. It wasn't like there was this one view that they all held. Um, so Marcus was the emperor, uh, and he lived in a palace. Um, uh, 
Seneca was a billionaire, the first century uh, AD equivalent of a billionaire. He li- had a very luxurious life. And so you might think, ah, so they're into that, are they? Uh, but Musonius, you ask him, where's a good place to live? And he would say, well, you know, caves work pretty well. And yet they're all Stoics, um, mainstream Stoics. So it's not the kind of monolithic doctrine you might imagine. Hmm. I'm interested about your thoughts related to the explosion of the interest in this stuff in the last, you know, 15 years. I think you're right that you were on the ground floor of popularizing what has become a, a very popular philosophy for a lot of people, especially in our our country of the U.S. You know, when you think about the four men that you just mentioned, and then you think about the world in which we live, what are those people saying? What are the original primary thinkers from the Stoic tradition? Um, you mentioned the word hacks earlier. What what are the you know guiding ideas or suggestions that they offer to their audience and to the people who read their work that you think is resonating right now for Actually, so many I people? I didn't use the word hacks, but I routinely use the <laughs> word hacks, and that is um, <clears throat> because again, uh, as a serious academic, uh, you can tell that I am. Correct. We're not supposed <laughs> to think in terms of hacks, and and philosophers aren't either. And uh, and the word hack um, belittles what they gave us. They gave us psychological tools, psychological techniques, highly effective, easy to learn and use psychological techniques. So do you have to read 300 pages to figure it out? Nah, you know, um, uh, I, I when I give lectures in, in crowd, you know, in-person lectures, uh, we often do a little some stoic exercises right there and takes a matter of minutes and I tell them, okay, now all of this can be fine-tuned, but here's the basis of it. So what a lot of people did, so and again, when I wrote Guide to the Good Life, which was the stoic book that I thought the world needed, uh, I'm usually wrong, by the way, about what the world <laughs> needs, or at any rate, the world has a different idea of what it needs than my idea of what it needs, but um, and you can do advanced searches on Amazon, uh, and you can go back and you can say, give it a certain time period, and you can say, list all of the books published in the following year, like all the books published in 2006 that have the word stoicism in their name, and you'll come up with a, a bunch from that year. Um, but almost all of them will be the actual works of the actual Stoics, their their writings. And uh, and then there will be a handful, maybe half a dozen, of uh, books about Stoicism written for um, broader audiences, written for general audiences. And that's why when I wrote it, I thought, you know, it's not going to sell. And I thought I was pulling a, a fast one over on Oxford University Press because I thought, uh, I feel sorry for these guys. This book's not going to sell. Hmm. But it did. A rough start. And then and, and then it's hard for me to reconstruct what happened. But I know um, there's public radio out in California. Uh, and I'm going to blank on, on what it is. Uh, Pacifica Radio, I think is what it's called. I did an interview there. And it was just a really great interview. Uh, you know, you could tell the, the guy interviewing me had actually read you know, the stuff and uh, and asked appropriate questions. And then they kept playing that interview. So my own hunch is that played a key role. And there also seems to be this tie-in 
with um, this is Silicon Valley, and uh, and so you can you can kind of make the geographical uh, link there. So so people who were there might have come across that. Uh, but anyway, from then till now, the number of Stoic books has uh, has increased dramatically. So I told you when I uh, mine was published, there were maybe half a dozen. Uh, last time I checked, you can do that same um, Amazon search for <clears throat> books published so far this year with Stoic or Stoicism in their title. And uh, they're coming out at a rate of approximately one per day. Most of them self-published, but you, you can just see it's it's just huge. And they're taking different forms. My colleague, Donald Robertson, who's uh, uh, written a, a, a nice book on Marcus Aurelius, has also um, taken part in this graphic novel about, uh, about Stoicism and about Marcus Aurelius. And, you know, that just would have been inconceivable before. So it's spread... Uh, to many, many people, and it's taking these different forms, you know, just, just that I wouldn't have thought of. Uh, and Guide to the Good Life has been uh, translated into more than uh, 20 languages and pirated into one, I might add. I kind of feel, kind of feel proud of that. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. Uh, I'm the messenger. Stoicism is the message. So, um, my uh, ego can run away and say, boy, you played a key role in that. Well, I'm a messenger who's successfully delivered a message. That's what I will take uh, credit for. Uh, and I also uh, have the feeling of these other people have taken it and run with it. More power to them, you know, because uh, the message is the key thing. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, the psychological tools that you know, some of these Stoics have left behind. I know one that you, I've heard you speak about uh, previously is negative visualization. And I wanted okay. to uh, just give you an opportunity to maybe explain a little bit about what that is and, you know, where that fits into the most important messages that the Stoics have sort of left for all of us. Okay. Yeah. Negative visualization is just an easy one uh, to pick uh, initially. It's got a terrible name. Because uh, it's a negative name, uh, and there are a lot of people who say you're being so negative. Well, yeah, but it's so you can experience positive emotions, which sounds paradoxical. So here's the human predicament in one sentence, and that is <clears throat> you um, you don't appreciate anything in your life. Well, maybe you appreciate some things, but when you appreciate something, usually it fades with the passage of time. And what happens is you start taking it for granted. And you can watch yourself as you pursue your uh, goals in life. You can watch yourself work very hard to attain a goal. And uh, and you're thinking, you know, if I get to that goal, that'll be it. I'll be at the top of the mountain and I can just relax and enjoy life after that. And you get there, you get to the top of the mountain and it's wonderful for a few minutes, for a few hours, for a day or two, maybe for a week. And then you start thinking, yeah, this is good. All right. But look over there, an even taller mountain. And if I can make it there. Now, another way to do the metaphor is like you're a person out on the desert. You know, the plane has crashed. You're on the desert and you look off in the distance and see uh uh, what looks like water, and you go to get it, and uh, but it's just a mirage. But there, off in the distance, is another one. 
So you spend your life pursuing these things. You are dissatisfied with what you have. You imagine there's something else that if only you had it would make everything right and you would live happily ever after. You pursue it, you get there, and it works for a bit, and then you're right back where you were before. Uh, and psychologists call this the hedonic treadmill. We work hard to get what we want, and on getting it, we want something new, and we, mm -hmm. we, we just keep uh, pushing. So uh, both the Zen Buddhists and the Stoics realize there's another way to deal with the hedonic treadmill. One is to just run faster, right? So you've got what you've got now, uh, and then you work really hard to get the thing you want that you don't have. And both the Zen Buddhists and uh, Stoics, and this is one, one thing that just really uh, blew me away when I realized it, they said, no, 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 there's a second way. Mm -hmm. What you have to do is you have to learn to appreciate and keep appreciating what you've already got. Cause, newsflash, you've already got it. So you're not gonna have to pursue it. Um, so how do you do that? Negative visualization is the key technique. So you take the things in life that you're taking for granted and you imagine yourself losing them. And the thing you imagine yourself losing could be your job, could be your health, uh, could be the use of your index finger, you know, you could you could have it break or something like that. Uh, could be your spouse or partner, could be your children. And the list is very long. Uh, and uh, so a, a, a little while back, I started doing a list of all of the things that I take utterly for granted. Uh, one is the ability to understand um, spoken language. Because uh, you can lose that ability. There's a brain dysfunction that suddenly words just start sounding like noise. You know, if somebody walks up to you and starts speaking Swahili, you mm. hear noise. Mm. But when I'm speaking English, you don't actually hear noise. You hear words. That's an ability that can go away. And so there's just a ton of stuff that you take utterly for granted that could go away. And if it did, you'd say, oh, I had it so good but I didn't appreciate it. Now, if you dwell on that thing, if, if you dwell on that sort of thing, if you dwell on the bad things that can happen to you, you're going to be a miserable human being. You're going to be depressed. So I'm not suggesting that you dwell on it. I'm suggesting that you make a point of periodically having thoughts about losing the things you've already got. And so it, when I do uh, in-person lectures, one of the things I do is the closed eye kind of experiment where I say, okay, I want you all to close your eyes. Okay, keep them closed. Okay, now I want you to imagine that this is how you're going to have to go through the rest of your life. Okay, so give them a minute. Um, then, uh, okay, now in a second here, I'm going to tell you to open your eyes, but I want you to imagine that when you try to open, they won't open. And then you're going to realize that's it. You're going to spend the rest of your life without eyesight. And then finally, I relent and say, okay, go ahead and open your eyes. The glue is gone. Open them up. And uh, it's a really amazing thing because you'll have this rush of, oh, my God, I can see. Not only can I see, but I see in color. I can do depth percep uh, perception. I can do all of these things. And yet most people go through life taking it utterly for granted. Uh, another little wrinkle on that is uh, I don't just see patches of color. 
I see things. That's another thing your brain does. You know, it sort of filters what you see and says, no, it isn't just a wild field of colors. Uh, there's a lamp over there and there's a rug over there. And I see it as a rug. If you lost that ability, you're still going to have your sight, but you're in deep trouble. Uh, anyway, there's literally millions of things you're taking utterly for granted. Now, here's the snag, and that is uh, it'll wear off. Give yourself uh, an hour, give yourself 10 minutes, and you'll be right back where you were before. You'll be taking it for granted. But the beauty is that technique can be reapplied as needed. And uh, I, I make a point of uh, in my daily existence, if I got a free moment, not thinking of anything, I think about something suddenly being absent from my life. Hmm. And um, I think I'm, on the whole, much more appreciative of my life than I used to be before I did uh, stoicism. You know, another kind of thing connected with this is we tend to live our lives wishing we could be living someone else's life. And then the odd thing is, guess what? There's somebody out there wishing he could be living your life. Mm. Okay. Uh, so I got an e email um, from a, a person who had been reading my books. And uh, she said, you know, she described the circumstances of her life, you know, that she feels unsafe and so on. And uh, I reply, I rolled back. I said, you realize there are literally billions of people, billions who would switch circumstances with you in in a heartbeat they would have be, because how come but you have a flush toilet right you have a roof over your head you get food every day you go through the list and yet it's easy to take it utterly for granted and wish well i wish i had champagne to go with this dinner of mine you know i wish i lived in a bigger house and that's just the human condition we're insatiable but there are these psychological tricks we can use to deal with that. Yeah, I, I think you just said the key word, which is um, which is insatiable. And I know, you know, there's a quote about the scantest affair and how, you know, one of the other, and I would love for you to speak about this, but one of the other psychological tools is intentionally introducing periodic adjustments to your lifestyle, not quite um torture but some degree of sacrifice and suffering to appreciate what you do have um if anything resonates with that general idea i'd love to hear about that and maybe also just how you've integrated it into your life because as i understand it you're a practicing stoic yourself yeah i'm uh practicing the key thing is practicing you know and they say <laughs> practice makes perfect so uh do i backslide oh yeah uh are there days when i forget to engage in negative visualization oh yeah do i allow myself to get stupidly angry over something do i yell at other drivers sometimes who can't hear oh yeah but i'm working on it i'm working on it uh okay the whole notion we want to live in comfort and uh if we ever were in complete comfort we would end up miserable human beings because, you know, you have a, a biological immune system and it protects you against uh, bugs, germs, viruses, and the world's full of them. And uh, if you have a, a functioning immune system, it, 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 can it can encounter them and deal with them and, and without your health being affected by it. So there's this classic story, uh, literally a kid who was born with immune deficiency had to live in a bubble in a plastic bubble and uh, uh, uh I, I won't do spoilers here but uh 
he he ultimately died. But the point is that if you live in a bubble, any irritant from the outside can be fatal. Uh, now, besides having a biological immune system, you have a psychological immune system. And one of the things you want to do is keep it healthy. So how do you keep your biological immune system healthy? Well, you expose it to germs. That You go out of your way to do that. I have a, a relative who's a, a pediatrician, and I asked him, about uh, uh, you know just raising kids, and he's. I said, well, what about you, you know right now your your child, you know your your little baby is sucking on the dog's ear. And I said, is that bad for her? And he said, well, he was taught in medical school that a kid should eat a pound of dirt, and not in one sitting, and not just any dirt. But the point is, the constant exposure. To germs will build a healthy immune system. So switching over to your psychological immune system, if you never experienced bad things, negative things, things with the potential to upset you, setbacks in general, you would be the most miserable person on the planet because the smallest thing would trigger a full outbreak, you know, within your psychological uh, immune system. You couldn't cope with it. You know, one little detail of your life would be wrong and you'd be going around, I'm the most miserable person on the planet. Whereas if you have or if you or experience a fairly, you know, steady inflow of these, then when one comes along, you um you'll just say ah oh, yeah I, i've dealt with this before i can deal with this uh and in my case uh i live very comfortable circumstances i mean you, you know you compare me to people in uh in uh, underdeveloped countries and so on uh, uh i have air conditioning i have heat you go through it so i go out of my way i call it stoic training i i purposely do things that make me mentally uncomfortable and physically uncomfortable uh mm -hmm. physical uh discomfort um uh i'm a competitive rower uh that's not a not a canoeer it's not a kayaker but it's a it's uh row a skull that's two oars not one oar because that's sweep and uh do it competitively and in the off season i also erg and when we're training for that we do what's called interval training so there's one workout where we uh, we row for a thousand meters, and on a good day it takes you about four minutes. And I call that. And then and then what do you do? You rest for a bit, and then you do it again, and then mm. you rest for a bit and do it again. I call it the four minute flu, mm. because you go from feeling very you know the world's a great place. Look, I'm out on the water, and four minutes later you can barely breathe. Your head's hanging over. You're thinking, ah, oh, I ache, right? Why do that? Why would any sensible person do that? Because it keeps my psychological immune system strong. And, uh, and you know, I come away uh, with a degree of confidence. I say, you know what? Uh, I can do that, and I can, I can survive that. And in fact, I can flourish under those circumstances. And that's something good to have, you know, in, in, your, in your back pocket, because the world's going to deal you surprises and there's going to be uncomfortable circumstances and then you, you'll be able to say you know what i i can do a thousand meters and yeah it's tough going but i can get through i have no plans to climb mount everest because i would probably die trying but you know if you have climbed mount everest 
and you have a, a challenge come up later in life, uh, and somebody says, "Do you think you're up for it?" I mean, you don't have to say this because it's going to sound uh, it's going to sound conceited, but you can say, "Well, you know, I climbed Mount Everest." So I'm guessing that the challenge you describe, yeah, I could probably rise to that challenge. There's also the emotional discomfort and doing things purposely going out of your way to do things that are going to make you emotionally uh, uncomfortable. So one thing is I'm a big fan of failure. Mm. I don't like to fail, but I know that if I want to avoid failure, I know a surefire way to do it. And that is never do anything difficult. And you will never fail. So I go out of my way to do things that I know are going to be difficult, that I know are going to involve a degree of failure, not catastrophic failure, but some level of failure. Uh, How come? So I can get good at failing and bouncing back from failure. Okay. Uh, As a writer, I have experienced um, rejection. It's just, it comes with the thing. I read read an article a, a month ago. Uh, where they said that uh, being a writer is like uh, is like uh, s- swimming uh, in a river of rejection. And my correction, no, 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 it's like swimming upstream in a, a, a river of rejection. Uh, and uh, and then, but the interesting thing is, you develop an ability. It, it's something you got to develop. It's not going to come naturally. Some people fail. And the lesson they take away is, I'm never going to do that again. And I'm never going to do anything difficult again. Ah, that's one lesson. The other lesson is you learn from the failure. And then next you go on to make bigger, better failures and maybe success at some point. Uh, But failure is good for you. It feels bad, but it's good for you. Mm. I love that idea. And I love that idea of exposure being a requirement like with the immune system for developing some psychological robustness and the as you were just speaking now the the book anti-fragile by nasim taleb continued to come to mind i was also thinking about passages from meditations by marcus aurelius where he talks about when he wakes up in the morning expecting to run into difficult ungrateful annoying people and there was not an expectation that this was going to turn into a perfect world that was a utopia. He was preparing himself, as I read those passages, for difficulty. And that I think to your point, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that if you almost by exposing, exposing yourself to struggle, that you're preparing yourself for the real world as it exists, yep. which is inevitably filled with difficulty and struggle. Yep. Um, I'm getting old. And so uh, I'm starting to experience uh, the interesting thing is with old age, uh, you know, comes a whole bunch of new challenges, health challenges, things that used to be easy to do. I mean, I compare my my times for the races I wrote compared, you know, my times 15 years ago. It's clear I've gotten slower. Um, yeah. So uh as far as this this whole notion of okay, can, let's back up here. Re, I, I got off track, so repeat your question, please. Well, just just the um, additional commentary that you may have. I mean, to me, while you've been you know speaking over the last half an hour or so, I what else? The addition, something else that has been coming in my mind is 
you know, your book was published, I think the year after the iPhone came out and a couple of years before all the social media platforms began to proliferate everywhere in the world where now everyone's addicted to their screens. And I'm sure you've heard like with Jonathan Haidt's work related to the depression rates and suicide rates, especially in young people and especially among young women and how the mental health of at least some percentage of the population seems to have really taken a nosedive really since your book has come out. But as as I have thought a little bit more deeply about your work and why it's resonated so much, it's sort of the inverse of the pleasure, brave new world that so many of us can easily kind of sleep into where everything is just given to us. And with the click of a button on your phone, you can get everything a human has ever wanted. And to your point that you had made a bit earlier, that makes us miserable at the end of the day. Um, yeah. So I, I just wanted to maybe open up that that topic with you as to, I'm guessing you've thought fairly deeply about this, about the onset and the popularization of your book and other Stoic books in what has become modern life and all of the extreme conveniences that we now enjoy. Yep. We have it so good. And yet there people are so miserable. And, and, you know, I tell them, well, let's go to Uganda for a weekend. Let's check it out there. Small village. Mm. Oh, you're not interested in that. Well, let's time travel. Let's go back and visit your great, great grandparents who, oh, by the way, I did some research on your ancestry. Uh, they had five children, three of whom died before the age five. They didn't have toilets. They didn't have toilet paper. They didn't have antibiotics. Um, depending on how old you are, they did or didn't even have the telegraph. You know, you go through this and yet they will say, woe is me. I'm the most miserable person on the planet. Now, the um, so in conjunction with another project that I'm currently at work on, I've thought a lot about the internet, and uh, in particular, social media has had uh, disastrous consequences, because the first is, uh, we now live our lives to impress other people. Uh, now, if you lived, I, I live my life to impress Seneca, if I could bring him back, mm -hmm. I'd want him to say, you're doing an okay job, kid, right? Mm. Uh, but uh, uh, he, he is somebody chosen very carefully because, you know, he's got values, the right values. But uh, thanks to social media, we can live our lives designed to impress complete strangers. And this whole notion of making your life a public event where you're always just sharing your photos and they aren't even your real life. They're kind of your life as you kind of wish it would be. And you go deep into debt in order to create the illusion that you're living this perfect life. Okay, you've got one life to live. Do you really want to spend it trying to uh, please total strangers? That's mm -hmm. really strange. And... um the other thing, and this has been in the last few months, I've been thinking about, you know, the the AI, and I've been experimenting with Chat GPT, and then you realize um, the other terrible thing that's going on is um, the information space has been completely polluted. You know, all, all of the the the, the uh, fake stuff that's that's appearing, the conspiracy theories, um, and uh, AI. Is going to make it worse. I mean, so if it was polluted before, it's going to be worse. So I tried the other day as an experiment. Uh, 
I asked ChatGPT to come up with three theories linking <clears throat> wokeness with free-range chickens. Okay, <laughs> just two <laughs> things pulled out of a hat. <laughs> Came up with three theories that were kind of vaguely plausible. Well, at least as plausible as many of the um, things you can find right now as as widely accepted uh, conspiracy theories. You know, and then another thing is is the uh, we're going to lose touch of what's reality and what isn't because uh, somebody could take this conversation, these images of me. Uh, analyze my voice and then have me say whatever they wanted to completely different. And how is a person out there going to be able to tell? Uh, mm. And the answer is they aren't. And yet it's going to be technology that an eighth grader can use. They're very fa fast. You know, they grew up on this stuff. They're fast to, to do it. Uh, so what a world, what a world. And in this world, if, you know, if Seneca were here and could observe us and especially observe the prevailing trends that are taking over our culture. What would he say? What, what advice do you think someone like him would give to young people, to people in general about the world in which, you know, you and I find ourselves in with all of the addiction and the, the comforts and the traps that those can really bring to people's lives. Yeah, he would tell them something they don't want to uh, hear, and he would tell them to toughen up buttercup, to use the phrase that was popular on the playground back when I was a, a kid. So um, so life is uh, tough, and people can be mean, and, uh, and that's just a fact of life. That's not going to change in order to please you, so you have to, you have to find a different way of dealing with that. Um, and one of the things, so we talked about a negative visualization before, but another thing uh, that that uh, is of interest is a process known as framing. So, uh, you know, if you buy a picture and put it in an ugly frame, it's going to look ugly. If you take the Mona Lisa, put it in a really ugly frame, it's going to be an ugly, it's going to look ugly. Um, but you can take something ugly and put it in the right frame and you can actually turn it into something acceptable or even beautiful. Um, so framing, one of the things you can do uh, if somebody insults you, you may not have it in your power whether you're insulted or not, whether they insult you, but you can frame it and you can turn it into a joke. And, uh, and it's one of the best ways to turn it into a joke. Well, if you're not quick on your feet, you can't do that. You can just act as if they hadn't said anything. Just ignore it. And that really put them off their off their stride. You know, they're gonna be thinking, Well, I just I just insulted him and he's not upset. You're gonna ruin their day. Their goal was to ruin your day. You're gonna ruin their day by doing that. So we have people who uh have uh, have a number of challenges in life. And some of them are, are the, uh, the targets of injustice. And a lot of times they can't, they didn't do anything to deserve that. And yet here it is. Uh, so if we could bring Seneca back uh, after saying toughen up buttercup, he would say, uh, here's the deal. Uh, you have a choice in this. You get to frame the injustice that you say you're experiencing. And you can frame yourself as a target of injustice, 
or you can frame yourself as the victim of injustice. And if you put the victim frame on, you're going to be miserable. You're going to wallow in the injustice. It's going to haunt you. If you put it in the frame of target, then that creates a possibility that you can actually start a significant movement, you know, to end the kind of injustice that you uh, have been targeted uh, with, mm. targeted by. So think about people who have led movements. Think about Martin Luther King. Did he say, boo-hoo-hoo, the world is full of racists? No. He said, okay, these are people who um, who need to be transformed in some way. We need, we need some way to deal with it. Came up with an effective movement. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi did the same thing, you know. Uh, the boo hoo hoo, you know. There are there are these outcasts in the world, and uh, and they and and they should all feel very deeply the injustice. No, he said uh, the people who are are doing this to you are bad people, and we need to come up with um, a way of uh, changing them, changing what they think, changing what they do. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I I'd gotten an email from a. Uh, a woman who went on at length about the injustices she thought she was experiencing. It sounded true, you know, sexism, the, the, the standard kind of things. And, uh, you know, the suggestion was that she was miserable because of it. Now, I, I didn't say this, but if you're miserable, it's on you. It's on you because you've let them accomplish their goal. Well, how do I avoid being miserable? Well, you frame it the right way. You say, these are idiots. It would be like if you're walking down the street and a dog barks at you and it ruins your day. It's on you. Mm. It's a stupid dog. Dogs bark. Uh, but you have it in your power to keep that in mind and that it was just a barking dog. And I don't care. I don't care what a dog thinks of me. Um, so, yeah. So that's uh, one way of dealing with that. But it's what people don't want to hear. And when people are are uh, playing the role of victim, the last thing they want to hear is, well, you know, you need to toughen up and yeah. here's how to do it. But that's exactly what Seneca or any of the other Stoics would say. They would come here and they would say, you're doing this all wrong. You're, you're encouraging them. You're treating them like children, right? Well, they should be insulted that you're treating them that way. And yet you've gotten so far into their head that they don't feel insulted. They feel, yeah, yeah, I am helpless. Somebody, please help me. And it's it's tragic and it's needless. Uh, but there you go. That's the world we live in. I think that's an extremely important point. And you know, you talked about the exposure to germs and how that toughens your immune system. You know, it's exposing yourself to failure and persevering through that can. Um, bolster your psychological robustness, and same with insults. I, you know, I look around at, and I I know it wasn't that long ago you were on campus where comedians are being canceled, where certain people who have ideas that people find deeply offensive ideas are not allowed to speak on campus because of protests that happen there, and I I wonder if there are any other. Um, tools that you might recommend for people to to try to toughen up. You talked about physical exertion and psychological exposure and exposure to failure. I just think it's such an important point in 
um, our culture right now. And to me, it's it's clearly one of the reasons why your book has resonated with so many people and stoicism in general is so popular at this point in our history because of its instruction. You know, for people who are also who, who are looking for guidance, right? If I think for people who are on the other end of toughening up, they would agree with you. For people that are not yet slightly calloused or calibrated to be able to handle um the difficulties of life that people inevitably face, they're looking for guidance and some potential instruction. Is there anything else that comes to mind for you that people might want to consider who are open to um, struggle, to exposing themselves to things, to try to um, bolster themselves up, to move from a victim to someone who is more of a survivor, somebody who can who can persevere in this world and overcome and do difficult things. Yeah, you have to decide uh, who, you, who you're trying to please. And we talked about um, social media, where you're trying to um, please complete strangers who, by the way, will turn on you in a moment because, uh, you know, they're bored. Uh, so they'll make some remark. And then others will say, gee, I didn't have enough wit to make that remark, but I'll pile on. And then suddenly mm -hmm. the people who were formerly your friends or your followers uh, turn on you. You want to av avoid that. You want to you be thinking very carefully, who is it I want to please? And one of the people, the person at the top of your list should be you. Mm -hmm. You know, what you want matters. Now you can't trample other people to get what you want, but what you want uh, really matters. And um, there are people, so I have people that I uh, I, I call men my mentors, uh, and when they're talking, I shut up, I get a pencil and paper, and I start taking notes. Now, usually they're mentors in one aspect of something, so I have a rowing mentor, for example. Uh, among my stoic mentors, I would put a Seneca on uh, at the top of the list, so... Um, you, you know, we have an ego. We're humans. This is how it works. And our ego is always there in the background whispering, well, you know more than this guy does. Uh, or you're good just as you are. Well, you know, lock your ego in a back closet, right? That's where, that's where your e ego belongs. And instead, think, okay, I uh, have one life to live. Who am I trying to please? I'm trying to please myself. What does that mean? And the Stoics would say, well, uh, guess what? You have a fair amount of control, not over what the world does to you, but how your response to it. And so you've got to develop uh, this ability to withstand uh, the bad things the world um, does to you. And um, it, it is uh, an important kind of process that you you go through when you when you practice stoicism. You realize you're you're approaching the world from a different angle. I told you I have mentors. I also have anti-mentors. I don't tell them this because it's a really good way to make a lifelong enemy. But these are people who, when they approve of me, I scratch my head and think, well, if that person approves of what I'm doing, I'm doing something wrong. Hmm. Uh, how come? Because that person I know has values that are wildly different than mine. And therefore, if I'm pleasing that person, I have abandoned my own values 
and sh- and shame on me uh, for doing that. You know, a lot of people, what do they value? Fame and fortune. Two words. Now we'd have to expand on that. So fame means what? Social status. Fortune means what? Well, enough money so you can buy great stuff, so you can gain social status. So it's really social status uh, at the bottom. Okay, I am avidly not playing that game because it's a loser's game. Wherever you get to, you will always want more. So you will be living a life of dissatisfaction when satisfaction is within your grasp. What you have to do is learn how to be satisfied with all what you already have. And a lot of people hear that and they say, well, you're just settling then. Well, yeah, I'm settling. And what I'm settling for is actually really great. And I can be happy doing this. You know, I to- told you Musonius Rufus in a cave. That's an okay place. Yeah, but shouldn't you want more? Well, yeah, I could, but let's think through the logic of that. Will that make the wanting go away? Nope. It's just a new level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched a thing. I've been watching an incredible amount of YouTube uh, lately because it's this extreme laser beam narrow casting. I mean, if you have an interest in something, they have stuff for you to watch. And so I stumbled across one thing where this guy's deal is apparently to take free jet rides with billionaires. Um, so uh, you, you get to see this uh, inside of a, of a private jet. It's kind of cool. But you get to hear him talk to the billionaires. And the interesting thing is, they're living the life of our dreams, and they aren't happy. Well, what would you like? Well, more money. Well, how much do you got now? Well, I'm not going to tell you, but it's in the billions. And you need more. Yeah. How come? Because what I have is not enough. The ability to have enough, that's a very key notion. If you have enough, good for you. But if you don't have enough, you're going to live a life of dissatisfaction. You've got one life to live. Do you really want to live it in a state of dissatisfaction? I love it. It reminds me of a Vonnegut line, which I'm guessing you may have heard before, where he's dining at yes. a billionaire's house. And I thought I it, would get away with it, but yes, I was lifted. Go ahead. And he he says, um, you know, his, he's dining, and his friend says, uh, "What do you think of this place?" And Vonnegut says, "You know, well, I have one thing that this man never will." And his friend said, "What's that?" And he said, "I have enough." Yep. Um, and another line that came to mind. Um, is a famous Warren Buffett line that it's not greed that drives the world, but envy. Yeah. Um, Bill, I can't tell you how much I I love this conversation and how much I want to just thank you for your contribution to launching stoicism back into our culture. And uh, I think it's it will have inevitably and has had positive effects on just the strength and the abilities of people who live in the West and in our our culture in general. I thought maybe I would close with a quote from your book, which which touches on a theme you were just mentioning at the end. Um, And this is from you. If we seek social status, we give other people power over us. We have to do things calculated to make them admire us. And we have to refrain from doing things that will trigger their disfavor. I really appreciate your time, Bill. It was wonderful to meet you. And uh, thank you so much again. Oh, thank you. I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. 
Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 